Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I am your host, Rob Walling. This week, Brian Castle joins me on the show, and we talk about assessing product market fit, how to find a mastermind, and answer many more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 477. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing ambitious startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Brian Castle, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Welcome back to the show. We have a listener question episode today. And Brian Castle, who you may know from the Bootstrapped Web podcast, he was also on the show just a few weeks back talking about his experience growing a productized service. It's called Audience Ops, and it's a content creation service that he grew and then had a 40% decline in revenue and then built it back up through 2016, 2017. And then he taught himself how to code and has since launched an early stage SaaS called Process Kit. So Brian has uh, a myriad of experiences under his belt. He's still an early stage SaaS founder, but he has a lot of productized service experience uh, and is a blogger and a podcaster. So I enjoyed the conversation today. I felt like we attacked some pretty interesting questions in, you know, in a very startup for the rest of us kind of approach, you know, that building the ambitious startups, being meticulous, disciplined and repeatable and taking on these questions in a pragmatic way and answering in the way that, that we would approach them. Before we dive in, I've had a few questions about what I've been up to lately. And, you know, the, I think the, the biggest thing I've been focusing on is a Tiny Seed Batch 2 applications closed about a month ago. And with Tracy and Einar, I've been having a ton of conversations with founders of companies who uh, applied to be part of Tiny Seed, and that's been super exciting. So moving on that process, it's something that's it's super time consuming, but it is, it's critical to, this, to making this whole idea and this whole ecosystem work. And so just been really digging in, spending a lot of time on that. In addition to working on microconf stuff, in fact, the state of independent SaaS, the survey that we ran a couple months ago, that report is almost done. And we're putting the finishing touches on it in the next week or two. And I'm going to be doing a live video presentation of kind of the high level findings and the most, you know, the most important findings of it here in just a couple of weeks at the end of January. So if you want to be in the loop on that, if you already responded, you know, if you, if you responded to the survey itself and included your email, we'll certainly notify you once that's uh, available. If you're not on the list, obviously microconf.com uh, would be the place to get on that list. And there's a, there's an, I think it says Indie SaaS report or something in the, in the header. And um, there's a landing page there when you can find out about that. And, you know, whether you come to the live, view the live video event or not, we will have a full PDF report of that that will be made available. And there's some some crazy interesting findings. I'm super stoked to be digging in this data. I have this mental model of how this all shakes down, but to actually have data to look at and sift through and to see which of my assumptions and my experiences match up with that and which are um, perhaps, you know, contrary or countered by the data has been super fascinating. And I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. And I can't wait to, uh, you know, for us to share that with you and the rest of the MicroConf community. And with that, let's start answering questions with Brian Castle. Brian Castle, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. We're going to answer some questions today. I think you said the, the question and answer episodes are some of your favorites. Is that right? Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, it's, uh, this is one of my favorite types of uh, Startups for the Rest of Us episodes. So yeah, excited awesome. to dive in. It'll be fun. 
So I've already reminded people in the intro of, you know, your areas of expertise and everything. And uh, we have some voicemails to kick us off. And then we actually have a comment. I, there's an interesting one about how to accept payment by check in a clever way that I had never heard about. So I'm really interested to hear. I saw that one. Your yeah. take on I know. I was like, hey, I learned something. It's great. But uh, let's kick us off with our first voicemail, which is a question about the product market fit survey. Hi, Rob. This is Daniel from Tualatin. I'm curious whether you've ever come across the product market fit survey methodology and what your thoughts on it might be, or if there's other quantitative, you know, number-based um, survey methodologies you, you've used to, you know, assess customer feedback. Thanks a lot. So to give listeners a little bit of an idea, um, I'm pretty sure he's talking about the Sean Ellis product market fit survey, which is one question and then with the follow-up, and it's how disappointed would you be if this product, X product, went away? It was You were no longer able to use X product. And the answers are, it's like, don't care, mildly disappointed, really disappointed, somewhat disappointed. You know, it's, it's, what is it, four or five different options, right? And if someone selects the top two of being really disappointed or incredibly disappointed, you know, the top most severe or disappointment, then if at least 40% of your current customers select that, then Sean Ellis said that's when he deems you have product market fit. I like this survey and I respect the hell out of Sean Ellis. He's a great, great you know, growth marketer. I like this survey because it, it gives you data and information. I don't like it or I, I think one of the cons is I don't see product market fit as a binary. This makes it look like you know, below 40% you're not and above 40% you are. And I feel more like it's a, a gradient, you know, where it's, it's, it's a spectrum of having product market fit with certain audiences. And oftentimes you have a little bit of product market fit, but not a lot. And when you start getting a lot, you really, really know it. So with that context for the listeners, I'm curious, Brian, to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, I definitely completely agree about, you know, what is product market fit and that it's not binary hundred percent. We don't have a lot of context in terms of what the questioner wants to use the survey for, or like what, what's his current situation? Is it a new idea and he's doing customer research to validate it? Or is it an existing SaaS with a thousand plus users and maybe he's considering doing like a pricing change or something? Like what, what is the goal for using that sort of survey? And, and I think the usefulness of it, it you know, really depends on, on different situations. You know, w- without knowing that background, I, I have a couple of thoughts on this. I mean, I really do like using surveys in general, and I've, I've seen that one. I've seen different versions of it, and there are all sorts of like good questions that you can include, but I always want to really stress that it's important to couple pure data from surveys, especially if you can have enough you know, responses to, to have meaningful data with actual co- uh, conversations with customers. I mean, because you're, you're really going to find much more, I, I feel like, real information from actual conversations or just understanding the language that people use or their body language and things like that. And one thing that I do a lot in, in, in all of my products, you know, especially early on during the validation stage, but even ongoing, I even put this into like automation flows that, that happen all year long where a person gets a survey, it asks a few questions like that, like how did you hear about this? What's the problem you're trying to solve? What are the current solutions that you're currently using for, currently paying for? And a lot of those I actually have free form text answers. I could use multiple choice and you can get harder data that way, but I like free form because again, it, it gets them at least typing 
and then and then I can read those responses, and then I, I'll handpick the ones that just gave a lot of information or they seemed really into this problem and they wanted to answer questions about it. And then I'll personally invite them to calls. And so that's that's usually the flow is like survey to reading their responses to picking out people and then talking to them. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to do it. I, I agree with you that talking to customers is going to get you so much more context than than a survey. With that said, and of course, I just Google, I should have Googled this survey before, so I wasn't stumbling around describing it. The question is, how would you feel if you could no longer use product name? And there's only four choices. I remember there being five. Maybe it changed over the years, but it's very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed, and not applicable. I no longer use the product. And it's if 40% or more say very disappointed. I've run this survey with three and maybe four different products. And I remember it's harsh because I remember having like Hittail was growing very quickly and it was, everything was working. It was a smaller scale app, right? It, you know, peaked in the low to mid six figures of, of annual recurring revenue, but it was growing and seemed like people were using it. And when I did it, I didn't get 40% that were very disappointed. It was like, I think it was in the like 25 to 29 range. And I remember being pretty shocked by that and also disappointed. And then I remember running it with drip. I ran it for two others before that. And I have no memory of what the answers were or the response was, but uh, I remember running with drip and this is when drip was really starting to take off and it was starting to grow very quickly. And I knew we were onto something and people were, you know, coming in and churn was really low. I think may even have hit net negative at that point. And we sent this out and I remember being just like, oh, this is totally, I'm going to, this is going to be a 70, you know? And I think it was, it was like a 43. And uh, I remember being shocked. Like it's pretty, it's a harsh judge. You know, that, I guess what I'm saying is this, I, it really is a high bar that if you get, I think if you get near 40, you're probably doing pretty well with your product. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like it's, especially since it's just one question, it's sort of like a jumping off point to go dig in deeper. So it's like you do the survey, you get the data back, it's below 40 or, or above 40. Okay, what does that mean? I don't think that should mean like, okay, let's go change everything in the product now. I think that should mean let's go talk to customers and then understand what the underlying issues are that leads to that number. Yes, indeed. All right. Our next question is from a longtime listener and a many time microconf attendee, Andrew Connell. Hey, Mike and Rob. First, kudos to Mike for being so open and honest about Blue Tick and what you're working through. You know, hearing what, what and how someone else is working through um, and the issues that you've got, such as what you're doing, is one of the most helpful resources for the rest of us. So thanks a lot. Good luck and keep it up. Um, now for a bit of a show feedback and a question. I love the new format. Change is always good and it's nice to see the change. As a fellow podcaster who's been doing this for six years uh, on my show, I like that listeners develop a connection to the host. So a change in the format is just like moving houses. It's still the same family, but the environment's changed. So well done and keep it up. Now, this podcasting community and microconf, they've done a lot for me since discovering it about six years ago. However, I now feel like a fish out of water. My business is in info products, mostly one-time sales, but some subscription stuff. It's not something I'd call SaaS, though. Um, this is an awesome community, but it's dominated by SaaS businesses, topics, questions, tactics, et cetera. Microconf even feels more like it's just micro SaaS comp these days. And that's coming from a four or five time uh, attendee. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that applies to different businesses, but um, I suspect you get my point. People don't, you know, take that as, I don't want you to take that as a complaint or a gripe. It's just an observation. Maybe it's unfair, but I'm a firm believer in doing your thing. So you guys keep it up and do what you're doing. But I'm curious, you know, what you would think about this. So my question is, 
more about advice on other communities to explore. Over the last year, I've been looking into different conferences, trying to find other podcasts and communities, niching down to just the info product world. Info products and non-SaaS businesses have some very specific challenges, and they don't, they don't have other challenges that SaaS businesses have. From the last few years at MicroConf, I suspect that there's a pretty good-sized community because we bind together and have a pretty good-sized meetup and dinners of considerable sizes. Maybe I'm wrong, or maybe there are other listeners that hear this comment or question who may identify with it as well. I guess I should tell you who I am. I forgot to mention at the beginning, uh, this is Andrew Connell from Boitano. So uh, keep it up, and just curious to hear what you guys think about this. Thanks. What do you think, sir? Yeah, a few things. I think actually within the MicroConf community, I think people might be surprised, even though it clearly has, you know, the kind of the emphasis on software and SaaS. And that's certainly true, you know, from the speakers and the and the overall themes of these conferences. I can personally say for sure that I'm friends with multiple people who return to MicroConf every year and they do not own SaaS businesses. They run e-commerce businesses. I know some info product people and those who are in that community. So and I, I think that's that's a really good thing. And I, I think you can still find those people within MicroConf. Outside of that, one to to consider would be Dynamite Circle from uh, Dan and Ian from the Tropical MBA podcast. I was active in that for a while, not not so much recently, but that community is is pretty sizable, you know, similar to the MicroConf community as well. And it has a I think a a wider variety of there there are some info products stuff there's e-commerce folks in there some stuff related to like you know travel and working from anywhere but um, that's a good one to look into I, I don't know about info product stuff specifically in terms of communities i know that uh, that can be hard to find but yeah those are my thoughts yeah tropical mba or dynamite circle is what i was going to suggest as well good community. I've always considered them like a sister podcast to us. And they're more about being a digital nomad, but also have a nice variety of e-com and kind of content websites. There, there's a lot of Amazon Amazon and e-commerce sellers now. There is some software. I mean, I've, there's been some WordPress folks and even some SaaS folks who kind of straddled both lines. So like that community, I spoke at their event in Bangkok in 2014, I believe, um, and just have been a long time, uh, you know, admire what they're up to. There is like Rhodium Weekend or Rhodium, the Rhodium community from Chris Yates is a very authentic community, similar, similar to MicroConf in the sense that Chris has just groomed it over the years. And really, it's just a lot of good people. That's more about buying and selling websites, but there are definitely folks in there who do who do info products. And then there's this whole world. The thing is, is then you get into the, like the internet marketing stuff, right? You can like look at Digital Marketer and DigitalMarketer.com from Ryan Dice, and that's like online training. And they, I believe, they run traffic and conversions. You could go to that, you know, that conference. But that's less. It's more about the marketing and less about the product. And that's where software and SaaS are pretty unique. Is that we do get together and geek out about our products, not about, well, in addition to other things, but like the products is a thing that the product is a thing that unites us, you know, whereas like dynamite circle, it's not the product you have. It's more of the, the like traveling and kind of going against the, the standard script of the rest of the world. That's the unifying factor. Whereas with e-commerce fuel, another community I respect there, they are more like us where they unite around around e-commerce. And I would agree with you that I still think, I mean, we do get info product questions. I still have I have a course, although I took it off of Udemy because Udemy's, I don't know if you've used them lately, but it's kind of a train wreck as a seller. 
they just keep changing the terms and all. It just was more headache than it was worth. I had a course on there about, you know, hiring VAs, have multiple books. So I still am, I'm a big believer in info products, especially in that stair step, that step one to get you to the point of quickly buying out your time. I think they're fantastic. For me personally, long-term, that recurring revenue, that growth, you know, the, the high sales multiple, if you decide to sell, like that's the beauty of SaaS. And that's why I think so many people, I think so many more people aspire to run a SaaS company than aspire to run an info product empire. And I also think there's a lot more opportunity and there are just a lot more people successfully doing it. You know, obviously there are folks, yes, can you make 100, 200K or a million dollars in an info product launch? Of course. And we see people doing it, but they're really few and far between. And it's a, it's a hamster wheel of content creation. And it's a, again, it, it, it doesn't have the long-term, you know, the, the sales multiples it has to and, and all that stuff. So I think they're fantastic for a certain purpose, but I don't, I haven't come across a whole community that has kind of united around just building and, and kind of aspiring to do info products. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add like one uh, shameless plug here, if you don't mind. I, I run uh, the Productize, which is a course, but it, it's also a community. And we've got a, a pretty good you know Slack community in there now. It's for people who are primarily consultants and they're looking to kind of step up to running a, a business with a team and, and a productized service business. But there are folks in there who who couple that with some sort of training program. There are some software people and WordPress people in there too, but we've got a good good little uh, chat going in there in, in the Slack group, you know, for people who are going through that that transition phase. So that's that's another good one. Glad you mentioned it. Productizecourse.com is where you'd go to find out more about that. So thanks for the question, Andrew. I really appreciate it. And I hope to run into you uh, at the next MicroConf. Our third voicemail of the day is about, it's an interesting one. It's about building a very similar app, but making it more stable. And he's wondering if that's a competitive advantage worth pursuing. Hey guys, I want to start by thanking you for the work that you put into the show. I find it to be extremely inspirational, so keep up the good work. I'm working on my first SaaS app. I'm a web developer by day, so I work on it on nights and weekends. And the idea for the product actually came from my wife. Now, she works in a totally separate industry and interacts with a certain SaaS app on a pretty regular basis. And so one day she was describing to me how frustrated she was by this app because it was slow, unintuitive, and would sometimes experience downtime like during the middle of the day. So I sat down with her to take a look at it, and it really seemed like it was on a shaky foundation from a technical perspective. However, it's the only product that meets the specific need that it solves, which is why her company uses it. So our current working hypothesis is that if we build a more stable, intuitive, and functional version of the app that has future parity, we will have enough differentiation to break into the market. So what's your take on this? Do you think functional superiority with the same set of features is enough to differentiate us? Or should we be thinking about extra features that will kind of set us apart further? Thanks. Appreciate it. Mr. Castle, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I I like the fact that your your wife is a user of this other software so you have that that really close kind of use case where you can get that that personal research into how she and the other members of her company use the product that that's always good you'll probably want to expand beyond that and maybe talk to her coworkers or or other people who are using it I, and and i also like the fact that there is this solution out there in the market so so it proves that some people do buy the solution but it's not overcrowded from from what it sounds like I would also, you know, just have the question in your mind to to understand like how easy it is is it to reach that market. I I don't think you mentioned, you know, what type of company it is or or, in, or which industry it is. So even though you might be able to build something for that, 
market, how how easy is it to go find other people who are in like your wife's position in other companies throughout the world or throughout the country or the region? I think that gets to that question of like product founder fit. Like, sure, you might be able to build the same product or, you know, achieve feature parity, but do you have the inroads or the communities or, or the channels to be able to go reach those people? And, and are there enough of them? But I think that that's something that you could certainly, you know, vet out over the next few months. Yeah, I like the I like the the pros you pointed out. I think that you know the fact that they proved to market out by having this app is good. I have real mixed emotions about this one, and I think you need to ask more questions. I mean, the first question I have is: we can all, with our high standards and our impeccable taste in UX and usability, go use an app and say, "Oh my gosh, that app sucks. I could build it better." Do their users care at all? Do they care at all? Do they care one bit? Or I remember an example. I was a contractor, contract developer for a consulting firm that was redoing an app for the Los Angeles, for Los Angeles County. And they spent a million bucks and they paid us to build all this stuff. And the old app was was literally a mainframe. It was a terminal app that they would log into. And so the UX is typing, right? It was just wasn't particularly fun. It was hard to train people. It was pain in the butt. You couldn't use the, I don't know, it's like the delete key didn't work. Command this didn't work. There was no undo. There was all these things you couldn't do. And we built a modern, like quick web front end on it. And a bunch of the users were either so used to the old UI that they were like, oh, I used to like type this and then hit three tabs and it got me to the other, the other thing. And this doesn't do that. And we're like, yeah, you don't need to do any of that. You just do one click and it auto populates from this XML import. And they're like, oh, well, this just seems complicated. You know, it's like they didn't know that it was Change is hard, I guess, is one thing. And also, a lot of people just don't care and they're used to using something. So that'd be the first thing I would really try to suss out is like, does everyone at your wife's work, are they complaining about the software and just dying for a a better solution? Do they really, really need something better or do they not care? Second thing I would ask is, what are switching costs? Because without knowing that, you know, if it's just an export of a CSV and an import of a CSV and everything's set up, awesome. But if it's if it's switching cost is to retrain someone or retrain your whole team on it and move a bunch of data and do a bunch of other stuff, that's tough. You know, and if everyone's on, on annual contracts, that means you only have a once a year when you can basically get to those prospects because they don't have they can't just cancel for the next month, you know, that once they're on a year contract, they won't get there. So so think about switching costs and I would inquire about those. And the last one is one that Brian brought up, and it was the first one that came to me is you can build a better product, can you get in front of the users? What are the traffic channels? How expensive are they? Are these people online? If they're not online, it's a, you're talking about customer pain. You know, I've talked about competitor pain and customer pain. In this case, you probably won't have competitor pain, right? You're going to be the pain to your competitor because you're going to build a better product. But you will have customer pain uh, or could feasibly have customer pain if it's more of a brick and mortar type business where you can't just run some Facebook ads or do some content marketing and generate a bunch of leads where it's literally cold calling or going to events or or whatever. And, you know, since you haven't told us about the industry, we're just completely conjecturing here. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but these are kind of the three yellow flags or the three big questions I would have with just doing this approach. But can this approach work? Absolutely. I mean, building a, you know, look what Zero has done competing against QuickBooks. Most people don't like QuickBooks and Zero built a web-based admin or web-based competitor to it. I think the fact that there was Infusionsoft and then, you know, Drip and ConvertKit and all these other tools were able to come in and do similar things. That's what we were doing. We were trying to build a better, it wasn't a better version of it, but it was a easier to use, more modern, you know, with the integrations we wanted, just a more pleasant experience overall. And it worked. You know, so it can definitely work, but I think you need to answer some questions before you dive in with both feet. 
Yeah, just one one quick thing to add, kind of like a low-hanging fruit first thing to do on that last point to figure out like how how could you actually reach this market? I mean, a question to ask your wife or to understand how her, is to understand how her company bought the software that they're currently using, whether she bought it or a manager or 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 somebody else was was the decision maker. Did they go through an enterprise sales process or did they just Google and find the website and buy it that way? Do they pay monthly? Do they pay annually? Like I think those are better questions to understand than even how the product works, you know, to understand like what you're actually getting into. Totally agree. I think that's a good point. So thank you for the question. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is not a question, but a comment from Kenneth Kaw, and he has written in a few times in the past. And he says, hey, Rob, enterprise sales guy here with some help. And he had actually written in when I had David Heller on the on the show to do a hot seat about enterprise sales, and he had written in with a bunch of good suggestions. So he says, a lot of people don't know this, but Stripe actually released a way to receive payments by paper check this year. And this was a question that I believe in the Laura Rotor Q&A episode, we, we were asked, you know, how do you manage paper checks and how do you keep track of them and this and that? And so he's pointing out Stripe can do it. He said, this makes things so much easier since they provide your customers an address for the check to be sent to, receive and process it on your behalf. That's crazy. Coincidentally enough, we used to do the same thing as you did with Drip, which is to set a discount code to the customer in Stripe and then put reminders in and then check it. When payment is due once a year, uh, we deal with six-figure checks sometimes. So this has been a total efficiency improvement since Stripe deals with the invoicing, follow-up reminders, analytics, tracking, repayments, etc. Best of all, as a remote company, we don't need to depend on someone making a trip to our company's PO box to look for the check. I'm not sure why Stripe doesn't advertise this enough, but you should let your listeners know about that since all one has to do is simply enable a checkbox pun intended, in Stripe, which saves us bootstrappers precious time and resources managing this. Plus, it gives you an additional reason to deal with enterprise customers that want to do pay by checks. Big smiley face, because Ken is, of course, an enterprise sales guy. So thank you so much, Ken, for writing in. Did you have any idea about this, Brian? I had zero idea about this. I mean, <laughs> I did too. I'd never heard of that. I mean, that's that's a great service. When he said by check, I thought he was going to say, you know, in his subject line, it says payment by check, you Stripe. I thought he was th- going to talk about e-checks, you know, where it's like just an ACH thing where you get the routing number. But I mean, literally an address to mail the check, that is bravo, Stripe. That really is pretty incredible. I mean, I, mean, I, I knew about the ACH thing and I, I get promotional emails from Stripe. I, I have not received anything about this feature and it, it seems like a pretty killer feature. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on on accepting checks in general. I mean, I guess it, so like I've, I've seen this in, in my business in, uh, in audience ops. I've had quite a few leads actually ask for the ability to purchase our service using a check or sending or having us invoice them and then them paying us kind of like a, more traditional agency or consulting model. And I've sort of refused those. I, I just, we only stick to credit card and debit cards through Stripe subscriptions. And I know, I know for a fact that I've left some money on the table because of that, but I, I sort of opt that way because I just don't want to deal with chasing people down for checks in the mail. Yeah, that's the trade-off. At Drip, once we started accepting checks, it was late. It was after we had a much larger team. So there was salespeople that could manage it you know, because that really is what it is. It's like putting something on your calendar to remind you to check in with someone. But the bigger thing we did is we just said we have a, a minimum for a check. And so if I were in your shoes, I would only accept it for annual prepay. I would not do it on a monthly basis, right? That just, it's kind of like, hey, if you really want to pay via check, then you got to pay 12 grand all at once or 24 grand or, you know, whatever the price point is. That would be how I would approach it at your scale because it's not a requirement. But yeah, once you get up into 
25K and up, maybe even 20K and up annual contract value, you kind of need to start doing that in the, at least in kind of the SaaS, the B2B SaaS space. And that's where you need to figure out. It's great that Stripe accepts it. I mean, obviously it's enough of a pain point that they started doing that. They wouldn't have done that if people weren't asking for it. But I also think then, I wonder, it says they'll take care of all the reminders and all that stuff. That's pretty fascinating. I'd like to almost investigate this a little more because again, we kind of had to hand build something that reminded a salesperson to reach out and make sure that, that the check came through. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the, the other thing that at least I would keep in mind for this for for my business is is that we're a recurring service, and that's par- part of the reason why we don't do you know checks is is that we need the payments to to keep coming in so that our team keeps working. And if there's like a delay, then then we would need to know to like pause the service for a, a period of time. But I, I guess if this works automatically through Stripe, and and then Stripe can just mark it as unpaid or paid, then that can be your indicator. And then just the other question that I would wonder about is international payments, because that's also sort of a headache that, that we've seen, just because credit cards internationally tend to decline, especially for higher dollar amounts, you know, more often than, than like US-based for whatever reason. And, and so like we, we've had to fix failed payments more often with international. Um, and I wonder if this could somehow help that. I'm not sure. My guess is no. International checks are really, I mean, I have, n- I have not even Googled this, but international checks are so complicated with the banking that uh, I would guess that would be a, a V2 if they were going to try to tackle it. There's also big fees attached to it with sending checks and trying to cash them in non, you know, if you send a U.S. check to a Canadian or vice versa, there's this big fee they charge you to do it internationally. So I still think I, we experience all the same stuff you're saying with the, with the international credit cards being declined more often and that, but I don't think this would help with it. Also, one other thing to throw in is I wonder how much Stripe charges uh, as a fee for doing that. Typically, I mean, this is something to think about, right? Like if, you, if you're if you signing, a let's say, a $30,000 annual contract, a 3% fee on that is $900, right? So that's where it starts to make sense to maybe, you know, take a check because you can basically cash that for free. So if Stripe's still charging 3%, you have to think about that. But if they charge, if it's more like ACH where it's a small, you know, half a percent or 1%, this this could totally be worth it. So thanks again for the info, Ken. Always appreciate your insights. Next question is from Marek, and he says, Hey, guys, great show. Would love to get your thoughts. I'm the co-founder in a small software house, and I think he's an agency. I think they write their consulting firm. They're hired you know, hourly or by project. The issue is that my co-founder doesn't help the company anymore. He made some significant contributions in the early days, including his know-how, some money investing directly and working for free. But right now, because of an unplanned change of direction in the company and a change of the market situation, we can't find paid work for him. Not because he does not have value to give to the market, but for now, the company is too small for two founders slash CEOs. He was upfront about his expectations about work and skills in the company, and he still helps out a few hours a week for free. No hard feelings between us. We aren't looking for a legal resolution. I'm wondering if we should wait for the company to grow, if we should return him the money he invested, buy out his shares, or what you think. Thank you so much for your thoughts. This is an interesting one. I mean, we don't often get a lot of, you know, too many consulting uh, questions, but I feel like this could happen, you know, with with a, a SaaS startup. I don't know, skills no longer need might be an interesting one. I guess if you were a salesperson, co-founded it, and then you decide to go way down market and not need sales, like that could be something. But i um, curious if you have thoughts on this, Brian. Yeah, I mean, this is this one is tough. I, I don't know all the details on this. One thing that stuck out to me is that he he, he talked about you know, like refunding the money that he invested. So I guess the partners 
actually put up some of their own cash other, other than, you know, just putting in their time. So if it were, if it were just time and, and you're talking about like, you know, giving him compensation for the time that he spent, um, that's a tricky one. Cause it's like, you should have some agreement going into this thing that, Hey, we're all sort of investing in this idea. We don't know if it's going to go anywhere that, you know, there's no promises there, you know, then there's the, the question of how was the uh, initial partnership agreement you know, drawn up if, if there was any, which there really should, you know, generally speaking. And there's the, the concept of vesting and, and a vesting schedule. One model that, that I think we've, we've seen a little bit recently is the user list. I think you spoke to Jane about this. Is that right? About how they- They were vesting. Yeah. They, they sort of like paused her vesting so that like her, her initial time was still that value remained, but then from a certain date going forward, it's, you know, she's kind of phased out of it. I mean, that's one model to, to look at. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think consulting firms don't normally vest, but in this case, that would have been super helpful, you know, that if he was above a certain number of hours per week or whatever he was vesting. And then at, at the time that he leaves, then yeah, you do, he either leaves it in until it grows. I mean, it's kind of up to him, right? If you, if he owned 10, 20% of the company and he was, he only vested that much, then he could say, hey, please buy me out. And then you have to figure out, hey, we can buy out over you know a year or two. We can pay you this much per month out of cash flow. Or if he wants it to grow, he could gamble and you know kind of leave it in and expect that the company will grow and it'll be worth more, more when you get there. I believe our consulting firms, obviously there's going to be a range, but I think valuations are around one times revenue, annual revenue. And I don't know if it's looking ahead or probably looking back. I, I'm not exactly sure, but someone in the you know in the community might have more info on that. But I know the multiples compared to let's say SaaS or whatever are pretty pretty low because it is just kind of hours. You know, it's it's a dollars for hour type thing. Re- recurring contracts can can help improve that. Exactly. But assuming that 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 he's fully vested and he owns a third or half of the company, I really do think it's a conversation. I don't think there is anything you should do here. I think it's kind of up to the two of you. It's like, you know, with consulting firms, I mean, they they can have pretty good profit margins. And so the cash coming off could be used to kind of just buy him out. I mean, I think that's probably the long-term play. So you don't have someone with stock who really isn't working on the business. The hard part is how to value if he's doing all this work for free. I don't know. I don't know how you guys figure that part out. It's just what's what's fair there, you know. Do you agree on an hourly rate and try to estimate, or, or is that just what created the value in the company, you know? And his stock reflects the value of of that, in essence. I, again, we don't really know all the details here, but if it's purely consulting and the the work that he was involved in when the work existed was just consulting projects that started and finished, then then I think that the question is like, how much does his contribution to those projects? live on after he stops working in, in the company, right? It, it's like, I think the simplest view is split whatever revenue came from those projects, 50-50 or whatever your, whatever your partnership agreement was, and then new projects going forward that he's not involved in, you know, he's not, he doesn't really have a part in those. That would be a simple way to look at it. I mean, the, you know, the other thing to, to consider, depending on like how big the numbers are that, that we're talking about here and, and, and everything else, um, you know, you might want to just talk to a third party I don't know, like arbitrator is the wrong, I mean, I know that there are professional arbitrators, but there are people, I think, in this community who, who it's like can, mediators, mediator, I think. Yeah, like mediators. For, right? Yeah. 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 That's a good way to think about it is, is to get someone, a third party to just kind of give you guys some direct advice, knowing all the details, right? Because that's the problem is I think there's some gaps here. So hope, hope that was helpful, Merrick, and wish you the best of luck figuring that out. Our next question 
is from Fred Meyer, and he's asking for some advice on finding or starting a mastermind. He says, hi, I'm a web developer and owner of two lifestyle businesses looking for a mastermind to start or join. The easy-to-Google options don't seem attractive. Do you have any advice on finding or starting a good mastermind? And I'm going to assume that since he's a web developer, he's looking for like a software-oriented mastermind. My recommendation is always Ken Wallace's mastermindjam.com if you really have no network. I mean, my first recommendation is always go to your network, you know, go to events, be part of the startups for the rest of us in the microconf community and, and you'll find people. But if you haven't done that, can't do that, whatever, Mastermind Jam is, is a really, you know, is a good alternative that, that Ken uh, matches people up. But what do you, what do you think, Brian? Yeah, totally agree. I, I recommend Mastermind Jam all the time. Uh, I also recommend you know going to conferences like like MicroConf, like the upcoming MicroConf locals. That that should be a good one too for this. And yeah, just getting into communities like that. In the past, you know, when I when I was really early on in this industry and I didn't know too many people, I had a bit more focus on my local community. I, I would go to local meetups. I, I went to at the time I was into like web design and WordPress. So I went to local web design and web development and WordPress meetups. And, and I met, you know, some really good friends through that. And that turned into sort of like local uh, mastermind groups. These days, I'm not in like a weekly mastermind currently like I was for a while, but my mastermind group now was sort of born out of the microconf community where we go, we, we do tiny comps a couple of times a year. So we all, you know, fly to one place and and have like a deep dive. And then we sort of chat on, on Slack throughout the year. And I, and I find that that's a good format for me right now. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, sir, we are all out of time for today. If folks want to keep up with you, they can head to, let's see, there's productizecourse.com. There is audienceops.com, which is your productized service where you create, uh, you and your team create content for content marketing for folks on a subscription basis. And castjam.com, is that right? Is that your uh, your personal website? <laughs> I know, it, it's changed. You know what? I actually retired that name, but th so it redirects to my name now. It's, it's at briancastle.com. Good. Good call. And Castle is C-A-S-E-L. Yep. And then are you you're still are you still Cast Jam on Twitter? Yes. Yeah. My uh my my teenage AIM screen name lives on through through Twitter. Yep, <laughs> you're like ah, I know, I know. Well, certain things. I mean, I registered softwarebyrob.com in what 2004, 2005, and started blogging. It's like, why didn't I just register my name? You know, I, I maybe it was taken, or maybe I didn't think about it. But years later, I mean, it was literally in the past probably 18 months. I finally I bought robwalling.com from the from the previous owner and redirected. And it's just so much easier. You know, it's so much more memorable. It's like once people remember your name, they can find you versus trying to remember this derivative <laughs> of your name, yeah. you know, so. I, I always, my whole life I've had, you know, people mispronouncing and then misspelling my last name because they, they think it's like the word castle. But then in, in recent years, I'd have people kind of mispronounce or, or not understand even what cast jam even means, which it doesn't really mean anything. And so I, I just got sick of kind of explaining that whole thing. So just, it's my name. <laughs> and that, that's where my, you know, my blog and newsletter and, and links to my podcast and products and, and all that's from there. So That's the center. Very cool. And if folks, um, well, if they listen to this podcast, they will like the Bootstrapped Web Podcast where you and Jordan Gall chat every week or so about this, this kind of stuff. I'm a long-time listener. Long-time first-time. <laughs> long-time listener, first-time caller. Anyways, all right, man, I'll let you go. It uh, was a pleasure having you. Yeah, good time uh, to, you know, answering these questions. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Absolutely.
that wraps us up for the day. If you have a question that you want answered in a future episode of the show, whether by me or a guest, you can leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690. You can email questions at startupswiththerestofus.com. Obviously, you can have just plain text in there. You can attach an MP3, Og Vorbis, Dropbox link to an AIFF. You know the drill. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. If you're not subscribed to Startups for the Rest of Us, you really should be. You're missing out. Search for startups in any podcatcher and uh, visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of every episode posted within, eh, give, let's say a week, maybe two of when the episode goes live, but continue to hear that the searchable transcripts are super helpful for people. So we will continue to do those. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.